Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 62, Organic Chemistry. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, we're going to discuss a, or the fundamentals of organic chemistry, give sort of an outline to what is a very large and broad field. Organic chemistry is quite technical, and to be properly understood requires a great deal of practice and looking at structural formulae and chemical reactions and so on, which we obviously can't do here, nor would it really be appropriate. What I will attempt to do in this episode is give an outline of some of the core issues, concepts, ideas, and findings of organic chemistry so that you can be, hopefully after you listen to this, a bit more literate about these sorts of issues and maybe fit together some things that you've heard about and concepts that you've been exposed to before but perhaps not properly understood. So in this episode, we're going to look at what is organic chemistry, what is meant by organic and inorganic compounds. Uh, we'll look at the different types of organic compounds, including polymers and um, um, biochemical compounds. I'll discuss a little bit about organic chemical nomenclature, so how organic compounds are named and what some of the words there mean. Then we'll look at some interesting uh, concepts in organic chemistry like functional groups, aromaticity, and fullerenes. We'll talk a bit about polymers as well. And I'll conclude by look, uh, discussing a bit about the different types of organic chemical reactions and organic synthesis, so how organic molecules like uh, drugs, for example, and new polymers are designed and constructed. So recommended pre-listening for this episode would be Episode 23, Chemical Reactions, and Episode 15, Chemical Bonding, would be very important. And I think Episode 9, Matter and Molecules, would also be relevant as well. Some basic understanding of chemical bonds and chemical reactions and atoms, molecules, and that sort of thing would be pretty much essential because it'll be quite difficult otherwise to follow uh, what I'm going to say. Right, so, that all being said, let's make a start. So, first of all, we need to define what is organic chemistry, what, what that subject covers and what is meant. So you've probably heard the term organic before. I think I've, I've discussed this before, episodes two and three about organic agriculture. I think I discuss what is meant by the term organic. But when, when most people hear organic, they, they think about organic food or organic farming or something like that. Unfortunately, the terms, the, the term organic as used in organic food and organic as used in organic chemistry essentially have nothing to do with one another. Organic food is, you know, food produced without using artificial fertilizers, and also there's a variety of other things that are used. If you're interested, look at episodes two and three, uh, techniques to use. But organic chemistry really has nothing to do with whether something is natural or uh, man-made, because organic chemistry studies both. Organic chemistry is really the study of carbon-based compounds. That's the fundamental characterization. It's stuff with carbon in it. But it's a little bit more technical than that because not everything that contain not every compound that contains carbon is considered to be organic. For historical reasons, there are some organic, uh, sorry, there are some carbon-containing compounds like carbides, carbonates, carbon dioxide, and carbon monoxide are classic examples of of simple oxides. Which so there are compounds like this that are not considered to be organic. So basically, c- certain very simple carbon compounds that occur in 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 many sort of systems that are not related to directly to to life or living organisms are considered to be inorganic, but that's largely for historical reasons. There's no hard and fast distinction or no f- firm definition as to what is organic and what is inorganic. It, it's a useful way of, char- of of breaking up chemistry into organic and inorganic. It's a useful uh, decomposition, useful categorization, but it's not hard and fast. There is not a clear definition. There's no universally accepted criteria as to exactly what is an organic chemical reaction and what is not, or what is an organic compound and what is an inorganic compound. The basic criteria is whether it contains carbon, but there are some exceptions to that. So to understand organic chemistry, it's very important to to understand, I think, the historical basis 
that it, it rests upon. Originally, the distinction about between organic and inorganic compounds was based on the idea of vitalism. Vitalism is uh, an, an old no- scientific notion that organic compounds, that is, compounds that are found in living organisms, are fundamentally different from inorganic compounds that, that you could obtain from, from base elements by manipulation, like chemical reactions. You know, it's that stuff like salts and minerals and things like that. Those were inorganic. Those you could manipulate and uh, form compounds th- through, through chemical reactions in the normal process, and those were sort of simple and less interesting in some sense. But the, the special substances were the organic compounds. These were compounds that were found in living organisms that were produced by plants and animals and bacteria, and it was thought that they could only be produced by living organisms, and that there was something special about them. There was some vital substance, uh, s- some sort of mystical almost substance, Elon, Elon Vital, it, it, it was called, and it goes by some other names, that, that made organic compounds special, and that it was thought that you could not convert in, inorganic compounds into organic compounds, because inorganic compounds lacked this vital substance, and uh, you, you couldn't just create this through chemical means, and that it was this vital substance that made life special or different to, to, to non-life, that made things living. So this this notion is a very old notion. It goes back to ancient Greece and was believed, you know, through uh, up until th- to the early nineteenth century when it began to be questioned. When there were uh, a series of chemists who began to develop, uh, who began to sort of draw close the gap in a sense between inorganic and organic compounds. So the the real clincher came with 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 a decisive experiment by Volher in in eighteen twenty eight when he was able to synthesize urea, which was long recognized to be a you know clear example of an organic compound. From, ino- from the inorganic salts, potassium uh, cyanate and ammonium sulfate. So two clearly inorganic substances, he were able to react them together to form what was clearly an organic substance. And th- this was not the only such experiment that, that was conducted around the time, but th- it was sort of one of the, the key decisive ones that really disproved this notion that there was anything special or that there was any special vital substance inherent to organic compounds, that in fact uh, it was just a different type of matter and that you could create organic substances from inorganic substances through the correct reactions. So basically, around the early to mid-19th century, uh, with the progress of chemistry, this notion of vitalism was discredited. However, the old distinction between organic and inorganic compounds remained, and is, is still widely used today to separate out chemistry. So if you study chemistry, there's sort of quite distinct, uh, quite distinct approaches, I suppose, or, or, or differences in subject matter between whether you're studying organic or inorganic. Fundamentally, it's all the same stuff. It's all atoms and bonds. The, the, the sort of physics behind it's basically the same stuff. But uh, there are important differences in, in methodologies and, uh, I guess, just the way it tends to be approached, uh, partly historical, partly because of the, the nature of uh, carbon compounds are, are quite special, which means that they are. it's useful to keep them as sort of separate disciplines or at least to, to have like specializations there. But there is no hard and fast, clearly distinct difference the, the old vitalist notion is is long discredited, uh, but but I think useful. It's useful to understand that that's where the the origin of this uh, notion of an organic substance came from. Okay, so having laid that historical background, let me talk a bit about some of the different types of organic compounds. One of the key things to understand is that organic compounds are very very diverse. That um, there's in fact there are far more organic compounds than inorganic compounds. Organic compounds are those that contain carbon. Usually they also contain hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and some other things like that. But there's a small... I mean, they can contain any element, but there's a small number of elements that are particularly common in organic compounds. Hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, uh, phosphorus, etc. Organic chemistry essentially studies carbon and some of those other elements that, that commonly occur with it. Inorganic chemistry studies basically all the rest of the periodic table, um, over 100 other, other elements. 
But organic compounds, I think there are several million known and named classified organic compounds and a few hundred thousand inorganic compounds. So almost all known compounds are organic compounds, and that's because of the uh, ridiculous diversity and flexibility of carbon, which which we'll talk about in a moment. But just to give an idea of some of the different types of organic compounds, so you know that what we're talking about. Uh, one big class are essentially natural compounds. These are biomolecules produced by plants and animals and bacteria. And most of these are still extracted from natural sources because it's either impossible or just too expensive to produce them artificially. So this is, you know, it's still the case that most drugs are developed from uh, from plants or, or other natural sources and often still extracted from them or grown in bacteria or something like that. Substances themselves, they're not produced uh, artificially in, in uh in a lab because it's too expensive. Another good example of this is uh, natural gas and oil and coal still extracted from the ground. These these are also organic substances. So examples of biochemical compounds that are important are carbohydrates, enzymes, hormones, lipids, neurotransmitters, nucleic acids, proteins, peptides, vitamins, fats and oils. All of these things are organic compounds. So essentially anything that's in the body is an organic compound with a few exceptions, but overwhelmingly everything uh, in most of the things that form life are organic compounds, or predominantly organic compounds. So that's the sort of natural class of uh, naturally occurring organic co compounds. But there are also a very large class of inorganic or synthetic compounds. These are not; these do not occur naturally and are man-made. The biggest co uh, classes of these are plastics and rubbers. So you probably know that plastic is uh, an, uh, an organic compound. It's it's made from hydrocarbons. So essentially, it's made from oil. Um, that's a simplification, but that's essentially correct. Rubber also is a, um, a synthetic polymer. So some of the, a polymer, as I've mentioned before, is a long molecule, a big long molecule that is comprised of a, a long interlinked chain of smaller components, which are called monomers. So you have a monomer, or a particular type of monomer, you string a bunch of them together, you, you chain them up uh, by chemical bonds, and you form what's called a polymer. So DNA is an example is an example of a polymer because it's comprised of individual nucleic acids, which you, you string them in a big long chain together in that double helix structure, and you form a polymer. Um, synthetic polymers, like the plastics and the rubbers, are formed using a similar idea, but um, the, the monomers are different. Plastic is a broad term that's used to describe a, a wide class of synthetic organic compounds, which, which are polymers, that they're made uh, by, by chaining together lots of organic monomers. So I think it's interesting just to, to think about the different types of plastic to perhaps give you a bit of an understanding of, of how this fits together. So all plastics are polymers, well, all, all plastics are, I know of are polymers, and they're certainly all organic substances, which means they're mostly made from carbon, well, carbon and hydrogen. So some of the different types of plastics include um, polypropylene. Polyethylene is the type of plastic that's used in plastic bags. So polyethylene is the most common type of plastic. It's used in very thin form in things like plastic bags, but it's also used just as a generic plastic to to make uh, so you know just small plastic toys or a you know a plastic keyboard or a plastic door handle. These are probably been made of polyethylene, and polyethylene is is very simple. It's basically just literally a chain of carbons um, with with hydrogens uh, bonded around around them. So so hydrogen carbons and hydrogen. That's really all it is, and you know it, it has to be cool and. Uh, Set in particular ways, so there's there's more complexity there. But but essentially, that that's what polyethylene is. It, fundamentally, it's made of the same material as, as oil is. It's just in a different, slightly different structure. It's just carbon and hydrogen. Another uh, third common type of plastic is called uh, polyvinyl chloride or PVC. That's used to, as a particularly hard type of plastic, which is often used in construction, like plastic pipes. That's uh, 
polyvinyl chlorine. And essentially, it's similar to polyethylene, but it's got chlorine atoms uh, substituted for some hydrogens, which add some strength to it. And there's also uh, other things like nylon and Teflon. There's many, many organic polymers. But these are all synthetic polymers. They're made in labs, often using inputs of uh, hydrocarbons to, to provide the raw materials, essentially, to produce the, the, the polymers. So, uh, as you might have hopefully been able to gather from the, the types of organic compounds that I've mentioned, that organic compounds are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, synthetic and natural Organic compounds are just ubiquitous in, in uh, contemporary society. So it's that's why organic chemistry is so important. But why carbon? Why is carbon so special or important? Organic chemistry is very important, and organic chemistry is essentially the study of carbon compounds. But, but why carbon? Like, why single that out? The reason is because carbon has a, an essentially unique ability to form very long chains of interconnecting uh, bonds, carbon-carbon bonds. Uh, the, this is probably called concatenation. Because... And this is important because the ability of carbon to be so useful is precisely because it forms these polymers. Many of the things that I mentioned before, the, the three different types of plastic, as the synthetic polymers, and the other things in life, like the lipids, your proteins, and your enzymes, and your hormones, and your nucleic acids, these are all polymers. And the reason that they can do such interesting things is because they can be such long molecules, which allows them to fall up into interesting shapes and, and carry interesting functions in the case of proteins, or to store lots of energy in the case of lipids, or to have uh, very you know to be very light and strong in the case of plastics but it's it's the longness and the complexity uh, uh, that or the potential complexity associated with that that allows carbon to be uh, carbon compounds to be so useful so that concatenation that ability to form very long chains is crucial and carbon is not completely unique but largely unique among the elements in being able to do that because it has a, a valence of four it it normally has four bonding sites because it has four um uh, essentially four empty spots for electrons uh, to fill that need to be filled by electrons, and those electrons come from other atoms. So it has four valence sites. That means four bonds that it can form with other atoms. And that four is a special number because it's it's essentially a ve- allows for a very symmetrical arrangement that allows you to form very long chains, whereas other other elements that don't have that symmetry, if you try and form a long chain of them, it'll either like, uh, it'll bend around and, and, and come back on itself, or the the changes won't be stable because of the uh, because of kinks and other things like that so so essentially being able to form long straight concatenated bonds is crucial to be able to, f- to form long complex polymers and that's what carbon does because it has a valence of 4 silicon also has a valence of 4 and that's partly why it's also quite useful in many applications but it's not as light and versatile it doesn't form and break bonds as easily as carbon does that that's another thing that makes carbon so useful it's very light and simple element so it, it just forms bonds with lots and lots of different things and can be sort of relatively easily made to form double bonds or to break double bonds and you can add elements and take them off. It's, it's just very flexible, very versatile. Um, and so therefore it's able to form this very large class of complex, uh, of complex and intricate molecules. One of the simplest forms of organic molecules is called hydrocarbons, which I mentioned before. These are a family of organic molecules that are purely composed of hydrogen and carbon, so just hydrogen, carbon, hence hydrocarbon, and uh, fossil fuels, so coal and oil and natural gas are sort of the canonical examples of hydrocarbons, because that's what they are, they're just carbon and hydrogen, and uh, when we burn them, essentially what we're doing is we're breaking up those bonds between the carbon atoms, and we're reacting the carbon with oxygen in the atmosphere to form carbon dioxide, and we also form water as well. We, we react some, some, some of the oxygen in the atmosphere with, with hydrogens found in the hydrocarbon to form water, H2O. 
So uh, the energy stored in the carbon to carbon and carbon hydrogen bonds is extracted by inter- by reaction with oxygen in the atmosphere and energy released, and then we use that to fuel our economy. So that's why hydrocarbons are so useful. They're also used, as I mentioned before, to, to produce plastics and so synthetic polymers. They provide the raw material in a sense for that. Okay, so that's the conclusion, sort of the introductory part of this, the what is organic chemistry, the types of organic compounds, and why carbon special. I now want to look at a few more specific elements. First, I want to start by talking about the nomenclature. So nomenclature is very is a very important component of organic chemistry, and there's there's a systematized way of referring to, what well, naming and referring to organic compounds, uh, as is unsurprising, because as I mentioned, there are so many of them, we have to have rigorous and clear rules for uh, for naming them. So these are th- these rules for the nomenclature are uh, agreed upon by the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, so IUPAC. They have you know very strict and very technical rules about exactly how names are put together. Essentially, the idea is that you look at the longest chain of carbons that is present in a molecule. There might be lots of different chains and subchains and so on. You look at the longest possible one and you base the name on that, and then you describe the molecule based on the position of different side chains along the main chain. So if your main, if your main chain, your longest chain of carbons has 10 carbons on it, then you name the molecule after saying, well, what is branched off from the second carbon and what is branched off from the third carbon and what is branched off from the fourth carbon. And then maybe there are sub-branches of that and so you, you name those appropriately. And, you know, each different type of bond or um, molecule that could be attached to it ha- has its own name, and so you, you basically just build up bigger and longer names according to where the different chains or subgroups appear on the main chain of, of carbons. Now, the, the rules are far too technical to go into here. I'm just trying to give an illustration of how nomenclature works and what it's used for. Um, the purpose is so that ideally every single organic compound should have a unique and unambiguous name from which you can determine its structural formula, that is, the exact relationship of all the atoms in, in the molecule. So, so that's why the names have to be very precise and technical, too, so, because they they literally describe exactly the structure of the molecule. It's not a name in the usual sense, because we could just call the molecule, you know, molecule four seven eight, and that might be enough. Or we could call it um, Bob. Like you could just have a name to refer it to. But but the technical nomenclature in organic chemistry actually specifies precisely the structure of the molecule, so that a chemist could just look at the name and, in theory at least, draw up the molecule, and they'd know know exactly what it looked like. So, uh, but but in practice, because these technical structural names are very long and complicated, chemists don't really use them very much in actually referring to, to compounds. What they tend to do is use either structural formula, which is essentially like a diagram of the molecule if it's if it's complicated, or if it's simple enough, just use its common name or a trivial name. They're also called. Now, now sometimes things are simple enough that you, the trivial name is the same as its proper name. So carbon dioxide, well. That's not an organic molecule, but it'll do for our purposes here. Carbon dioxide is its proper name. That's, that's probably what it's called. Water would be an example of a, of a trivial name. That's not its proper name. Its proper chemical name would be um, a dihydrogen oxide or dihydrogen monoxide. But water is just commonly used because it's easier. Or you just write H2O. But to give some examples. So uh, tartaric acid is a type of organic acid that's found in wine. Generally, you just refer to it as tartaric acid because it's easier and simpler. But its proper systematic name is... 2,3-dihydroxybutane-dioic acid. Let's break that down a bit. So 2,3, what does that mean? Well, those numbers refer to the carbon atoms all, along the main chain. And it says that something happens on... There's something attached to carbons 2 and 3. Well, what is attached to those carbons? 
Well, the next bit of the name tells us that. Dihydroxy. The di tells us that there are two. Okay, well, two what? Hydroxy. Well, that's, that's essentially just OH molecule. That's a functional group, which we'll talk about in a moment. So dihydroxy, there's two of those OH things bonded to the, the second and third carbon atoms. Okay, what are these second and third carbon atoms part of? What's the main chain? Well, the next bit of the name tells us that. Butane. Uh, but means four. So, so there are four carbons in, in the big chain. And ane means there are no double bonds. It's all single bonds. Ene means there are double bonds and ine means there are triple bonds. But don't worry too much about that. But, but you can indicate the type of bonds in the name. And the last bit, dioic acid, uh, tells us essentially that it's an organic acid. So that tells us also that there's, uh, there's another functional group that's going to be attached there. But, um, well, it actually tells us that there, there are two of them. There, there'll be uh, acids, acid groups at either end. But, uh, but the key point is that you can refer to the acidic uh, properties of, of the molecule by the, the final component, which is the oic acid. A dioic acid means there's, there's actually sort of those two of those acidic groups on the end. So, so overall we have the name 2,3-dihydroxybutane dioic acid. So that specifies completely the structure of the molecule and where everything is, the different functional groups and the different types of bonds. But you can see that that's kind of long and annoying, so tartaric acid's easier. Now, I can't resist giving an example of a much longer uh, name because tartaric acid's actually a relatively simple organic compound. Beta-carotene is a um, is a pigment found in certain fruits and vegetables, Responsible, so it's responsible for the, the colour of some of these, and it's, it's classified as a hydrocarbon. It's a fair bit more complicated than tartaric acid, so its sort of trivial name is beta-carotene. What is its IUPIC name? Well, its IUPIC name is as follows. <coughs> 1-3-3-trimethyl-2-1-E-3-E-5-E-7-E-9-E-11-E-13-E-15-E-17-E-3-7-12-16-tetramethyl-18-2-6-6-trimethyl-cyclohexene-1-E-octadeca-1-3-5
participate in. So the same functional group will undergo similar reactions regardless of the what particular molecule it's part of or how big the molecule is. So that's why functional groups are important because they're groups of atoms that form that that um, participate in the same types of reactions or the same type of chemical functions regardless of where you find them. So it's very useful to be able to identify functional groups because you can then predict uh, at least probabilistically the types of behaviors that a chemical species is likely to exhibit. So you see, well, it's got this functional group, so it's probably going to behave this way. Or it's got these, this couple of functional groups, and so it's probably going to behave in, in some other way. Or it's got this functional group, so that means it's more likely to engage in this type of reaction, or less likely to, 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 to participate in this type of reaction. So functional groups are really, really useful in organic chemistry for dealing with the, the ridiculous complexity of the hundreds of thousands and millions of different compounds. You see, you break it up by what functional groups are present. Indeed, that's a way of studying organic chemistry to study the different types of functional groups and what types of reactions they are in, what types of reactions they participate in, and what properties they exhibit, and so on. So, I'm now going to go through a list, a brief list of some of the many functional groups uh, th that are found in organic chemistry, and I don't expect people to like remember all of these or, or really follow it in in all detail. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to give the flavour of organic chemistry and what it's about. And so I hope to do that by going through some of these functional groups here. Also, you may have heard of some of them before, or at least some of the names. So don't worry if you can't remember them all or fit names with, with properties. That, that's not so important. Just try and get the gist of, of how this works. So let me go through a few. Alkanes I mentioned before. Alkanes have single carbon-to-carbon -carbon bonds. Alkenes, that's got an E instead of an A, an A, that's where you have a double carbon-carbon -carbon bond. And an alkyne, where you have a Y, that's a triple bond. And so these, these tend to in, engage in particular types of reactions. So we talk about alkenes, alkanes, and alkynes. An example of the difference would be saturated versus unsaturated fats. Saturated fats are, that means they have all of the hydrogens they could possibly have. That means they have no double bonds. So they're alkynes. Uh, sorry, they're alkanes. They have no double bonds because they've got the maximum possible number of hydrogens. They're saturated with hydrogens. If we take out some hydrogens, that means that instead of bonding to a hydrogen, two of the carbons bond to each other. And so you form a double bond. That's an alkene. So that's an unsaturated fat or an unsaturated uh, compound. So that's, that's an application of the difference between alkanes and alkynes and uh, alkanes and alkenes, and they tend to exhibit particular types of uh, functionality. And you know they have different properties. Like saturated fats are more likely to be to be a solid. Unsaturated fats more likely to be to be to be liquid. Another type of functional group are halo haloalkanes. So halogens are uh, chlorine, bromine, fluorine, and iodine. They're, they're the atoms right to the right-hand side of the periodic table, well, the, the, the second-to-right-most group, so not the noble gases, one before that, which have one free spot for an electron, basically. So, so they're very reactive because they only need one extra electron to form a stable outer shell. And halogens are particularly useful as solvents and flame retardants and, and in any synthesis reactions because you can often sort of swap out a halogen for, for, some, other for some other atom. So, it's a very, so haloalkanes are very useful. And an example of a haloalkane that I mentioned before was a PVC, polyvinyl chloride, that the chloride is a halogen, so that's a, that, that's a haloalkane there. Alcohols, very important functional group. An alcohol is, uh, the, the functional group there is a carbon bonded to an OH group. So, so the OH group is sort of what we refer to as the, the functional group itself. It's an, an oxygen and a hydrogen. If you have an oxygen and a hydrogen whacked on somewhere in your organic compound, it's an alcohol, or at least it may be. It has an alcohol functional group because you can have more than one functional group. But, so, so some common alcohols, ethanol, that's when you have two carbons, that's the alcohol you drink, or some people drink. Rubbing alcohol is called isopropyl alcohol, that's when you have three carbons in, in your chain. Methanol is when you have one carbon, and that's uh, very volatile and can be used as, as fuel. So basically, ethanol, methanol, and 
isopropyl alcohol are very similar in structure. There's just, you've got an OH group attached to some number of carbons. One in the case of methanol, two in the case of ethanol, three in the case of isopropyl alcohol. But their properties are, well, some of them are similar, like they're all flammable, but they certainly are quite different. Like ethanol, people drink. Uh, I very strongly recommend against drinking isopropyl alcohol or methanol because they're quite toxic. I mean, I suppose ethanol is toxic to an extent as well, but um, the other types are particularly problematic. So alcohol is a very important functional group, and that's what makes something an alcohol. It's just that OH group. Ketones. That's a ketone is when you have a carbon double bonded to an oxygen, and that's it. That that's the functional group. It's the C and the double O bond. That's all. Many important reactions in industry uh, use use ketones. Aldehydes. That's when you have a carbon double bonded to an oxygen and separately single bonded to a hydrogen. It's found in many fats and oils and fragrances. And another type of compound that is commonly found in fragrances are called esters, and that's where you have a, ca- a carbon double bonded to an oxygen and single bonded to a second oxygen, which in turn bonds to another carbon. Again, don't worry if you can't follow that. The point is that you can see that many of these important functional groups are fairly small. It's just, you know, you have a, oxygens or hydrogens uh, combined in a particular way, and a slight change in the way that they're bonded means that it's a different functional group. So many, many of the functional groups are actually quite similar in terms of you just look at them. The structure is quite similar, but their properties can be quite different. So, as I mentioned, esters and aldehydes are very commonly found in fragrances and oils and fats, and particularly esters have very distinctive fruit-like odors. So many artificial colorings and flavorings that... Uh, that are used in foods are actually esters. So uh, that that banana smell, for instance, I, I don't know exactly what compound it is, but I'm pretty sure that's an ester. Um, most of those types of things are esters. They're particular types of, of compounds with a particular functional group. Carboxylic acids, that's when you have a carbon double bonded to an oxygen and also double bonded to an OH group, the hydroxyl group. Very common in organic acids, like amino acids, acetic acid vinegar, that, that has a carboxylic acid a functional group. Uh, nitriles, that's when you have a carbon triple bonded to a nitrogen, that's used in many drugs. Uh, thiol, that's when you have a sulfur bonded to a carbon and a hydrogen. Many of those are used as odorants. So, for example, the smell of natural gas, when you say, you know, you can smell gas. Well, natural gas is methane, which is just C CH4. It doesn't smell. You can't see it, taste it, smell it, or anything. So when you say you smell gas, you don't smell methane. You can't smell methane. What you're, what you're smelling is uh, thiols that are added as odorants to, to the natural gas, precisely so that we can smell it. Phosphates are another important functional group. That's four oxygens bonded to a central phosphorus atom and then also connected often to a, to a carbon. Um, it's important for energy transmission, so it has uh, applications in biochemistry. So you might have heard of ADP or ATP, uh, energy molecules used in cells. That's adenosine triphosphate. They've got these phosphate groups. So, so very common applications in biology there. So, so that gives you an outline of some of the functional groups. You may have heard of some of them before, the aldehydes or the carboxylic acids, esters, Hello alkanes, alcohols, ketones. Very important for understanding and categorizing organic molecules and predicting their properties and uh, reactivities. So now I want to move on to talk about another property of organic co- uh, compounds, which is called aromaticity. Now, aromaticity describes essentially when you have a ring of unsaturated carbon atoms connected together. It's, it's, it's six carbon atoms connected in a ring. It's a particular structure. That phenomena is called aromaticity. The reason it's important is because essentially the six carbon atoms share electrons between all of them. It's sort of like one big covalent bond in some sense between all six of the atoms. Uh, That's not quite right, but it's a way of thinking about it. It's a special structure that has particularly low energy. You can spread out the electrons across a a sort of a wider space, which means that the repulsive force between the electrons is, is, is lower, which essentially means you have a lower potential energy. It's more stable. That's the key. It's more stable because you can spread out the electrons more. And, and so these, these aromatic rings, as they're called, 
are common in many types of organic compounds, and they're, they're a particularly stable way f- for carbon to, to form, so that they're um, they're very common. Uh, th- these 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 aromatic rings are also called benzene rings, a- and you may have seen them before because they're occasionally used in uh, in a sort of stylistic way, like in logos or in um, on products or things like that. It's essentially just a hexagon of of lines, and sometimes you'll have a circle in the middle or something like that. This is basically a benzene ring or or stylized versions of benzene rings. I'll post some pictures of, of some of these things on the uh, on the Facebook so you can get an idea of what I'm talking about. But I think it's useful to have an idea of what this thing is. It's very important in organic chemistry because it appears all the time and has many important properties. The reason it's called aromatic, by the way, is because originally it, it was associated with uh, odorants. Many odorants do have aromatic rings, but certainly not all of them do. So, so the name is sort of a historical accident, like many things in science and organic chemistry as a whole. Um, but But the phenomena is not... Is not fragrance. Like that's not what makes something aromatic in organic chemistry. It's to do with this conjugation stabilization property of the the, the spreading out of the electrons across the six hydrogen atoms. That's that's what aromaticity is. It's not actually about whether it smells or not. That's just that's just the word. So, for example, four amino acids are aromatic: histidine, phenylalanine, tryptophan, and tyrosine. Uh, each of them have at least one uh, aromatic ring in them. All of the five nucleotides: adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine, and uracil have a number of rings in them, aromatic rings, and so they form a key component of their structure. Steroid hormones are made out of a number of aromatic rings. Moving on to another very interesting property of organic compounds, things called fullerenes, and I can't help but mention these things. A fullerene is any molecule that is composed entirely of carbon in the form of some sort of hollow structure. So it could be a sphere or a tube or an ellipsoid or some substance like that. So diamond is composed completely of carbon. There's nothing else in it if it's pure diamond, uh, but it's not hollow. It's a it's a dense structure. Whereas there are sub there there's, there are things called buckyballs or or spherical fullerenes, which are basically spheres of sixty carbon atoms in a very particular arrangement. They're actually exactly the same structure as many uh, footballs or soccer balls are. So if you think about that shape with how it has like those flat surfaces all, all linked together. That's really exactly the shape, or very close to exactly the shape of a buckyball. Obviously, they're just a lot smaller, and they're made of carbon atoms, and they're only made of carbon, and they're hollow on the inside. Cylindrical versions of this, where you basically have a sheet of carbon and roll it up into a tube, these are called carbon nanotubes, and some people may have heard of these before because they're a sort of recent d- development in uh, in nanotechnology and, and uh, chemistry, and there's a lot of excitement about some of their properties because fullerenes tend to be very strong, very high tensile strength. They're also very good conductors of electricity and heat, um, but, but they're also uh, fairly inactive, that is, chemically inactive, because they don't have any exposed atoms that can easily be displaced. They're sort of wound up as a, as a sphere or, or a hollow tube, and there aren't any reactive functional groups like the alcohols or the esters or whatever to, to cause problems. The carbon by itself is just sort of sits there. It's very stable. It's not reactive, uh, but it's very strong and, and conductive. And so th- this combination of lightweight, strong, unreactive, and highly conductive means it has these have potential applications in computing, developing new computing technologies or new microchips, um, new uh, potential applications in, in producing very high, strong but lightweight materials for use in construction or in manufacture of machinery and other things like that. So it's very much early days for exactly what this will be used for. But I couldn't help mentioning them because they're an interesting application of organic chemistry and uh, people talk about them periodically. So uh, carbon nanotubes are just tubes of, of carbons rolled up together and they're an example of fullerenes, uh, hollow substances composed entirely of carbons. Very interesting, uh, very interesting things. Okay, so I'll 
come to the end now by saying a little bit about organic reactions and organic synthesis. This is making organic molecules, basically. So organic chemistry has a tradition of naming specific reactions after their inventor or co-inventors, and there are literally hundreds of these. There's a big list on Wikipedia you can check out, and I certainly won't, I won't really go through any of them. But each of these reactions, in order to specify a particular organic reaction, ideally what one does is is establish what's called a mechanism, a reaction mechanism. And this refers to a sequence of steps, very small steps, that, that specifies exactly what reacts with what in each stage of the reaction. So exactly how you get from the reactants to the products. So that includes specifying any intermediate states, which, which, which might be like high energy states that don't last for very long, or activated complexes, transition states. Exactly which bonds are broken, what order the bonds are broken in, exactly which new bonds are formed and what order they form in, electron transfers, whether there are double bonds or whether there's conjugation. Also, you'd want to include the stereochemistry, which is the exact shape of the molecule, which products are formed, in what order they're formed, exactly what reacts with what. You also would want to include the rates of reaction, any catalysts that are used. So it's it's literally in exact detail everything that reacts and how it reacts in the order that it reacts. And that's what a reaction mechanism is. So when you establish a reaction mechanism, describe exactly what the products are and the reactants are and all of that in detail, then you've established what the reaction is and you give it a name. And there are many, many of those. But it's very useful to, to, to understand these reaction mechanisms because then we can understand how they work and make predictions about, well, what if I changed something? How would the reaction change? Or how would the rates change? How would the rate de- depend on the, the, um, the different concentrations of the reactants, for example? All sorts of things like that. There are a few basic types of, rea- of, of reactions, classes of reactions that occur commonly in organic chemistry. Uh, the three that I'll mention here are addition reactions, elimination reactions, and substitution reactions. And I think I have discussed these before when I've talked about chemical reactions more broadly, because these can there, there, are, there are inorganic versions of these as well. But in an organic sense, an addition reaction is when two or more molecules combine to form a bigger molecule. Often this involves adding new species across a double bond. So a so classic example of this is the um, is polymerization reactions to form organic, uh, to, to form those long polymers, because Usually what happens is we, we start with a double bond between, uh, between two carbons. We, we break open the double bond and then we add things across that double bond. Maybe it's hydrogens or maybe it's new functional groups or something like that using the extra uh, space that, that's been, um, uh, that's been made there. And one, you, you can potentially use that to, to form longer chains of, of, of molecules. The reverse of an addition reaction is an elimination reaction where we have two substituents that are removed from a larger, bigger molecule. So you break up a big molecule into smaller molecules. And th- this is just the exact opposite of addition reaction. Y- you remove things, often hydrogens or other functional groups, and form double bonds between the, the adjacent carbons instead. Substitution reactions is just when you have one gr- atom or a functional group and swapped out for a, di- for a different one. Halogens are very common. The, the haloalkenes that I mentioned before, the chlorine and the iodine and such, and bromine, are often used in substitution reactions because they're they're really good to essentially swap out for other atoms, so they're very handy there. Organic synthesis, uh, which is a direct application of organic reactions, is the process of preparing a particular organic compound or species, as it's called, from uh, from a given react from given reactants. A total synthesis is a sort of more more specific phrase. In principle, a total synthesis is the complete chemical synthesis of, a, of some complex organic molecule from simpler pieces without the aid of biological processes. So not using, not using cells to do it for us. This is doing it, you know, in the lab, um, 
through through chemical processes so that we control at each stage. So if we just, you know, inject a gene into bacteria and get that to produce something for us, that's not really a total synthesis because we're just getting the biology to do it for us. Total synthesis is when we do it in the lab, uh, controlling all the steps. Usually the idea of a total synthesis is that you is that you start with simple pieces that are commercially available that you can get reasonably uh, easy access to. Like carbon dioxide would be a simple example. And then you combine these in a way that ultimately leads to the product that you want, which could be very much more complicated. And often that requires many, many steps. You don't go straight from the reactants to the products. You go through a long chain of intermediates. You gradually build up more and more and more complex molecules until you get to the final end product that you're interested in. And so at each stage of the process, each stage of the synthesis, you have to decide what chemical reaction to use, what reagents and, and products will be produced, what conditions are necessary, how fast the reaction will occur, so that's the rate of the reaction, because if the reaction is too slow, then that's not really viable. You also need to consider the yield, which means that what proportion of the product is what you want and what is other stuff that you don't want. So you, you always want to get a good yield, because otherwise, again, it, it's too slow and too expensive. You want to consider the purity of the product, whether they're going to be contaminants, whether you can figure out a different way of getting to the same product that is that has a higher yield or a, a greater purity or that has a faster rate. There's also another complication because most complex natural products are, are chiral. I talked about chiral, chirality in the previous organic episode. It essentially means like right-handed and left-handed versions. It's a mirror image of of the, of the same molecule. But but the activity of the molecule of most biomolecules depends on which version it is, whether it's the right-handed or the left-handed version. Traditionally, many total syntheses yielded mixtures of, of both the left-handed and the right-handed, and that's a problem because you only want half of them, and how do you separate out the, out the two halves when they're almost exactly the same thing? Like they're the same weight, for example, so you can't really use centrifusion to, to do that. More recently, there have been uh, new and very clever methods of trying to separate out uh, these mixtures, or even better, just to produce, uh, to, to devise a total synthesis that only produces one, whichever stereoisomer, so whichever handedness you're interested in. And there's clever ways you can do that, but um, that, that's another complexity that you have to consider, like whether it's going to be right-handed or left-handed and which one you want and how you're going to separate out the mixture if there is one. So a, a, a technique that's used for this these days is called retrosynthesis. And this is basically you, you start with what you want to end up with. You start with your desired product and then you, you break it down into something a little bit simpler. So you break one bond, say. You break this carbon-carbon bond or imagine detaching this part. And then you say, okay, well, now I've got two things that are slightly simpler. How can I get those? Suppose I had those. If I had the, these two things, then I could make my end product because I just react them together in, in the way that I know. Okay, but how do I get these two things? Well, then I break each of those down into smaller bits. But how do I get the smaller bits? And so you keep breaking, breaking down until you reach a stage where you say, oh, I can buy that. This is something that's commercially available, and so I don't need to produce it. And so the idea is you just keep breaking down, you keep going down the chain, breaking up each piece into more, smaller and smaller components until at every stage in the process you've reached something that's commercially available. At that stage, you've constructed a total synthesis because you've figured out how to produce the end product using substances that, that are available, assuming all of the reaction stages, of course, are, are, are possible and, and plausible. And then you have to consider rates and, and, and the yield and other things like that. But that's the basic idea of retrosynthesis. You start at the end and break up and break the... Uh, product up into smaller pieces and then figure out how you could get that. And so you'd supply the process recursively. So organic synthesis is a really complicated area and it's the product of a lot of research. Obviously, there's a lot of money here in terms of drug design, in terms of uh, treating diseases, in terms of developing new polymers and new materials. So, so there's lots of interest in the industry for this sort of thing. Um, but it's, it's very hard as well because you know, there are millions of organic compounds and literally an infinitude of possibilities of, of 
the structures that you could have and, and ways that you could react things together. And there's no like algorithm you can just apply to follow a set set of steps, like just to solve the equation and figure out how to do it. Um, oh, oh, there's a lot of sort of ingenuity and you know knowledge of the different chemical reactions and how this similar problems have been solved in the past. And uh, so there's much complexity there, which is why there's a uh, you know still a lot of demand for for chemists who understand this sort of stuff. But we now have reached the conclusion of this podcast. I, I hope you found it uh, interesting. I think organic chemistry is something that can be dry. I mean, it definitely can be quite dry, you know, if you're just learning reaction after reaction. Uh, hopefully, the, the way I presented it at least made it a little bit more interesting and accessible. Um, I tried to present some of the things that are more relevant, some of the knowledge that you might have heard or, or concepts that you can perhaps relate to. So try and think about some of the things I've talked about. I've talked about what is organic chemistry. I've talked about the types of organic molecules, both um, biomolecules and also synthetic polymers. I talked about why carbon is special, the special properties it has. I talked about the different types of functional groups and what those are. I talked about um, organic nomenclature, so how we name organic molecules. I talked about uh, some other special properties of organic compounds, aromaticity, fullerenes, and I talked about organic synthesis and reactions and the different types of reactions, and, and I talked about retrosynthesis and... Um, how that's done. If you enjoyed this podcast, please jump onto iTunes and give the podcast a favorable review. It really helps to increase the image and the exposure of the podcast. So, so if you could do that, that's much appreciated. Also, uh, give our Facebook page a like. Just go to Facebook, type in the Science of Everything podcast. You should be able to find the Facebook page. There I post periodic updates and also images and uh, visualizations to accompany uh, the audio material of the podcast. So check that out. And uh, even aside from that, just give us a like so that uh, you can you can boost the um, the visibility of the podcast. Uh, the website is uh, fods12.podbean.com uh, if you're interested in checking that out. You can also send me an email at fods12, that's F-O-D-S-1-2, at gmail.com. And there you can send me any recommendations you might have, things you'd like to learn more about at future topics or suggestions of how the podcast could be improved. Or just let me know that you listen and like the episode. I like to get those episodes those emails because it helps with motivation to keep producing new episodes. So, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. (laughs) 